Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening. I'm Liz Mitchell, and welcome to Bring It On, a multiple award-winning radio broadcast in our 17th year as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African-American community. Uh, Good evening, I'm Clarence Boone, and in the words of our guest tonight, genealogists say the most important thing on a headstone is the dash between the date of birth and the date of death, for that dash represents the life lived. At the top of a gentle rise in Indianapolis's 550-acre Crown Hill Cemetery is the final resting place of Lieutenant Colonel Joseph H. Ward, who lived 1872, was his birth, and 1956 was the date of his departure. He was an African-American surgeon, hospital administrator, and World War I veteran. Leon Bates a doctoral student, an Army veteran, and a member of Broad Ripple American Legion Post Number 3 in Indianapolis first came across Ward's name while doing research before returning to college and came to appreciate his legacy while doing additional dissertation research. Leon learned that Ward established and operated a hospital for Black patients when they were barred from treatment elsewhere. Digging further, he discovered he was a medical trailblazer, an early American legend, a legion member whose achievements decades before the civil rights movement have been largely forgotten. Leon Bates joins us once again for another foray into the intersection of race, black history and racialized violence as he sheds light upon the life and times of Lieutenant Colonel Joseph H. Ward. Leon, welcome back to Bring It On. Absolutely. Thanks, Thanks for having me. Well, uh, you know, you, you are a man who is a fount of knowledge and, and understanding and history. And I tell you, you, you knocked it out of the park on this one. I had never heard of Lieutenant Colonel Joseph H. Ward. And I, I'm looking at an article where you're pictured, and behind there is an historical marker that reads that African-American surgeon and hospital administrator Joseph Ward moved to Indianapolis and practiced medicine by the 1890s. Barred from treating black patients in city hospital, he opened his own Ward's Sanitarium and Nurses Training School on Indiana Avenue back around 1907. The private hospital later moved here at this very spot where the marker has been um, installed. Dr. Ward served in France with the all-black 92nd Division in World War I. What a man. And Leon, if we have questions for you, but if you just want to sort of give us uh, how uh, an overview and how startled you were once you began to sort of do the deep dive on this man's life. Oh, 
where to start? Um, I became aware of Dr. Ward when uh, I read a newspaper article about William Whitfield, the first African-American police officer killed in a line of duty in Indianapolis. And I'm reading that Sunday article, and it happened in 1922, and I'm reading this article in the 1990s and got really curious about it. So I went down to the Indianapolis library, the downtown library, and got into the microfilms and started reading the old newspapers and quickly learned he was shot in the alley behind where I live and just became more and more fascinated with it. And somewhere it said he died at Ward Sanitarium. And my first thought was, what was Ward Sanitarium? I'd never heard of it. And I was born in Indianapolis and grew up here and had never heard of it. No one I talked to had ever heard of it. So I kind of started trying to figure that out. And when I went back to college and started to uh, take history courses, it became one of my research projects. And in researching Dr. Ward, it, I just became fascinated with him. Dr. Ward was born in 1872 in Wilson, North Carolina. That means Dr. Ward was a first generation freedman. His mother was born enslaved. Um, and he was born on a plantation where his mother was born, right in one of the, the slave shacks where his mother was born. And his grandmother was still living there along with his mother, living on the same plantation of the man who enslaved them. And the man who enslaved them turned out to be his grandfather. And as a teenager, Dr. Ward left Wilson and went to Washington, D.C. and Baltimore, Maryland. And while he was in the Washington, Baltimore area working, I believe, doing some type of work as in a hotel in the kitchen or possibly as a something like a bellhop, he met a man named George Hasty from Indianapolis. And George Hasty was the uh, president of the Physio Medical Society in Indiana, and he also was the head of the Indiana Physio Medical College. And he brought young uh young doc young at that time joseph ward with him back to indianapolis and ward came to indianapolis and lived with dr hasty and worked as his valet uh driver those kind of things but he also went back to school and hasty put uh dr ward through school dr ward graduated from Sure ridge high school which was the only high school in indianapolis at the time in 1890, uh, 1893, I believe it was. And then he went on to uh, the Physio Medical College and graduated from there in 1897 and became a medical doctor here in Indianapolis. And then in uh, approximately 1904, 1905, he went to New York and studied at the Paul Hemus Clinic in Brooklyn, uh, New York to get advanced medical training. And one of the things he learned to do was to, uh, how to do x-rays. X-rays were brand new at the time in, in early 1900. And he's learning how to do uh, x-rays. He's also learning um, other techniques of dealing with uh, the internal organs and doing surgery. So he comes back to Indianapolis and because he's African-American, he is barred from practicing medicine at any of the multiple hospitals in Indianapolis, including Indianapolis City Hospital, which today is now Eskenazi Hospital. But in the, 
in that time it was uh it was city hospital and it went through several iterations from city hospital to uh general hospital yeah. to wishard hospital and then finally eskenazi but at the time african-american doctors were not allowed to practice medicine and they would occasionally take an african-american patient as an inpatient the city hospital ran a clinic where african-american patients could come in as outpatients and get treated and occasionally they would do an inpatient if you needed surgery and you had a black doctor and at the time there were about a dozen black doctors in indianapolis your black doctor had to hand you over to a white surgeon at city hospital for the surgery and care while you were in the hospital and once you were released you went back to your black doctor your black doctor had no say in your treatment could not participate in your care uh, when he came through the door he was just another visitor and that went on in indianapolis until probably 1941 1942 when Indianapolis City Hospital, that time General Hospital, got its first uh, black interns and first black nurses. So for almost 100 years of its existence, it was an all white institution here in Indianapolis. And Dr. Ward, to help fill in that gap, created Ward Sanitarium. Now with that said, you have to understand that the different times in this city, there has been at least four black hospitals. The Provident Hospital was the first one, uh, and it only lasted a few months. It was run by a black doctor, and I'm not, not sure what happened. There's really very few records on it. The other three were the Sisters of Charity, the Lincoln Hospital, and the Ward Sanitarium. Ward Sanitarium was probably the most successful and the most long-lived, but all of them were, uh, were, were virtually forgotten. And Ward Sanitarium closed around 1941-42, when City Hospital agreed to take black residents and to accept black patients and accept them equally, if you will. And I say that with, uh, with air quotes. And Dr. Ward went on to practice medicine almost till when he died in 1956. Um, he, he's just a fascinating, fascinating uh, individual. Um, I was, riding my bicycle you know for exercise one day in the summer and i don't live too far from crown hill so i got the bright idea to go over to crown hill and find his grave and i went over there and found it and to my surprise when i found that grave marker it was a military style grave marker and his rank and the, his specialty are abbreviations and being in the military i knew what those were when i saw them and i was just almost stunned when i started reading that wait a minute I knew African-Americans served in the First World War, but I had no idea that there were black doctors and that one of them rose to the rank of Lieutenant Colonel. Uh, it, I just didn't know what to say. So it was another exercise in, okay, who was this man? And searching down his records, uh, and I'm still not done searching for his records, but finding out what he did in the First World War. When the war broke out, Dr. Ward um, closed his sanitarium and he joined the army and went overseas. Now, when he joins the army in 1917, Dr. Ward was 45 years old. He was the oldest of the 106 black doctors and dentists 
the U.S. Army took in World War One. And by the time it was over, he was the highest ranking of the entire group. Um, he goes to France and serves in France. And uh, while he's there, he treats some of the most horrific wounds, he and the other black doctors, of the 92nd and 93rd divisions. There were two black divisions, 92nd and 93rd, and he's with the 92nd. But they treated some of the most horrific wounds you could imagine. And one of the things he learns to do long before we ever learned the term was he became a trauma surgeon or a trauma specialist. But when he came back to Indianapolis, he was not allowed to practice that skill set because there was no place for him to do it. His hospital did not do um, trauma type work. If you came to him with an injury, he would help treat it. But that was not his specialty. That was carried on at the larger white institutions. Um, he um, Once the war is over and he comes home, and there's another tragedy I want to speak briefly about. While he's in France, his, right, his wife writes him a letter and tells him that their nine-year-old son died of the 1918 flu pandemic while he was in France. And uh, that was the oldest of his two children. And I guess from what I've been able to gather, that is the, one of the things that really did... Uh, set him back that really uh, hurt him he collapsed i mean physically collapsed when he read the letter and himself was hospitalized for several days and while he was hospitalized from what i'm put, picking out of this they took him to a um army general hospital about 50 miles behind where his field hospital was and while he was there um during the night after he got over the initial shock and started to get back on his feet they discovered that he was up in his pajamas going from bed to bed checking on the patients and some of the and this is a white hospital that he's at and he's going checking these patients and the other doctors found out about it and they started to talk to him and realized he really was an exceptional outstanding doctor and one of the things that they did from my understanding is they recommended that he be promoted so when he went back to his unit, he went back with a promotion and they put him in charge of an Army field hospital. And the Army still today operates different levels of hospitals. And the field hospital is the hospital that at the time was closest to the, the, the combat. And most people who've probably seen the TV show MASH, mm -hmm. um, where they were actually doing the work in tents and the MASH stands for Mobile Army Surgical Hospital. They've changed the acronym now, but it's still the same thing. That hospital moves as the rest of the Army moves. A general hospital stays in one place using a larger city, and they it, it does not move no matter where the Army goes. The general hospital typically stays where it is. So when they send him back to that field hospital, he goes back and with the promotion from Captain to Major, and becomes the commander and by accident becomes the first African-American to get promoted to the rank of major in the U.S. Army Medical Corps. So he comes back a major to Indianapolis after the war. And while he's in Indianapolis, um, the Army, or I should say the federal government realizes they now have 
a significant issue. They have, um, I think it's almost 600,000 veterans from the first, black veterans from the first world war. And almost all of the VA hospitals were turning them away. Even though they were veterans honorably discharged, the US, arm, the US government's veterans hospitals were segregated and would not treat black veterans. So in its infinite wisdom, the US government builds the Tuskegee Veterans Hospital at Tuskegee, Alabama. And if you were an African-American veteran and you needed medical care, you, no matter which state you lived in, you had to go to the Tuskegee VA hospital. And once they started to set this hospital up, it started becoming a reality, the government was going to employ a white doctor to run the hospital. And the NAACP and several other groups uh, started advocating for a black doctor. And they also reminded the government of how bad race relations were and how bad these men could be treated. They're already being turned away from white hospitals. And the government said, well, there's no qualified black doctors. And it just so happens you have one in Indianapolis who has for a number of years run his own hospital successfully and who's now served in the U.S. Army and has successfully run a Army field hospital and has worked with doctors in a U.S. Army general hospital. He is highly recognized and accepted by many of his white counterparts who advocate on his behalf and in 1923, he becomes the head of the Tuskegee VA hospital. And by the time uh, he leaves there in 19, oh, 1936, I think it is, the hospital has grown from 200 beds to more than 600 beds, making it one of the largest hospitals, period, in the United States. And one of the largest government hospitals, the only uh, non-government hospitals, when I say government, non-federal government hospitals that I can think of right now that were larger than Tuskegee would have been Cook County Hospital in Chicago, Bellevue in New York, and I think it's Los Angeles General in, in LA. So that would have been about the fourth largest hospital in the nation. It was the largest black hospital in the nation by far. Um, Meharry, um, Medical Center is associated with the um, county hospital in Nashville, I forgot the county, it's in Davidson County. And it's affiliated with that one. That was 150 beds at the time. And Howard had a few more than 200 beds at the time. So Tuskegee was bigger than those, and they were the two largest black hospitals in the nation in, 19, in 1923. And Tuskegee was bigger than them. He had a $1 million plus budget in 1922. If you can imagine that, an African-American man who is in charge of a million dollar budget, a 600 bed hospital and over 100 employees, and he's directing it. And it was driving the uh, locals in Tuskegee to distraction. They just could not stand it. Dr. Ward was a tough taskmaster from what I read. But he was also uh, very fair, and he was also, uh, he looked the part. He was known to ride, the Tuskegee VA Hospital sits on 450 acres of ground, and he was known to regularly ride those 450 acres on his horse in a three-piece dark suit with a dark broad-brim hat and would uh, ride into town dressed that way and 
the locals would mistake him for some important white man until they actually got up close and saw who he was. And then that would upset him. Um, on, on that he, note, um, I, I hate to jump in, but we're going to do two things. Okay. I'm, I'm going to do a quick ID because some guests have just tuned in and they probably are writing notes <laughs> when you're talking. Because okay. they're probably wondering, who is this gentleman that is enlightening us? Uh, we just want to let everyone, all of our listeners know that we're talking to uh, Leon Bates, who's no stranger to bring it on. Uh, he's a researcher. He's uh, a Ph.D. student. And he, in previous weeks, has shed light on everything from sundown towns to lynchings in Indiana to police action shootings. And now this week. Uh, we're favored uh, to have him with us to talk about the life and times of a gentleman named um, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Joseph Ward, who is just a phenom of, of many of many stripes and, and, and ways. I'm going to turn this over to Liz. I know she's got some questions that, that she's okay. going to ask you. And we're going to come back to this uh, path you're on because I had a couple questions on sure. uh, hospitals who were compared compared to Tuskegee, and, and we can get in that a little bit later. But Liz, I'm going to turn this over to you at this point. Yeah, I just I know you were talking about how he rolled around uh, uh, Tuskegee on a horse and everything. And you mentioned mm -hmm. that uh, his uh, grandfather was the, uh, the, the, uh, the owner of the plantation. Yes. So so yes. that so that our listed audience can can visualize this man, that meant he was probably a mulatto. Yes. He was he was very light complected, y'all. Yes, he was. And so, uh, and but he was still a black man according to the rules of America. Uh, even though he was very very fair, he was still a black man. And so here he is in charge of things, and that's going to piss. Uh, white folks off down in that area. Okay. Oh, yes. So had that in mind, a very light complected black man strutting around. He's in charge of over a million dollar budget. So, and he's in the South. Okay. So have mm -hmm. that in your head. Um, so uh, my question is uh, the marker that you mentioned in Indianapolis, where's this marker located? It is on the northwest corner of West 21st Street and Boulevard Place at the bottom of the Interstate 65 northbound on-ramp. That is just north of the current Methodist Hospital. Is this where his hospital or sanitarium was located? His sanitarium actually was on Boulevard Place about two houses to the north of where the marker sits. The marker sits up on the corner because the the old sanitarium has been torn down and now there is a daycare center there and a parking lot and agreement between the city, the state, and myself, the marker went at the corner of 21st Street. It just reads near this spot, which is about two houses or two uh, residential lots north of where that marker actually sits. Okay. All right. Now I want you to finish telling the story because uh, what you were saying is he rode around on his horse. Oh, yes. Uh, and and <laughs> and uh, he was doing some other things that pissed the white community off. So you go ahead and 
tell our listening or audience right. he what he was doing made common sense but it pissed his white neighbors off go ahead yes another thing he did was because he had this budget and he was over the budget he was allowed to buy food supplies locally mm-hmm. and his dietitian um was an actually a registered nurse and she was African-American. She went to the local farmers around Tuskegee hospital and purchased in some cases, the entire crop. And she told them that she didn't care what they were growing. She just wanted to know. And she said, I will buy, you know, green beans, corn, uh, cabbage, whatever it is you're growing. You know, I need to be able to feed a 600 bed hospital. So I need lots of it. Uh, They also bought beef. I mean, they bought cows because they were slaughtering their own beef there and preparing that to serve to to the uh, the patients. They bought chicken. They bought lamb. Whatever these farmers were growing, um, his 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 dietitian was buying it, and she was buying it right from the farmers, as opposed to going to the local co-op and having the co-op take some of the money and then also get. Farm, pro- farm products from both white and black farmers, they made the decision that they would buy it from the black farmers and that they would buy it directly from the farmers. And that upset the local co-op to no end. And several times they tried to, uh, the federal government, let me back up, the local U.S. representative and one of the state senators tried repeatedly to get the Veterans Administration to make him stop doing that. And they said, by the rules, each hospital is allowed to purchase supplies locally. That's in the rules. And he's not breaking any rule, any law by what he's doing. Well, you know, he can't do that without dealing with the co-op. There was no law that said he had to do what he was doing, that he could not buy it. For, uh, he had to avoid the co-op. So he did it. And that upset him to no end. And that went on for a number of years where he was buying this produce from these people. Also, the entire administration of the hospital was African-American, every last one of them. And the majority of the uh, staff employees were African-American. Another thing that upset the locals, Alabama passed a law just a couple years before the federal government built the, the Tuskegee VA hospital that said white nurses could not attend African-American men. At the same time, African-American women could not be licensed as nurses in Alabama, or it was almost impossible to get a license as an African-American woman in Alabama. The few that had licenses had got them in other states and had come to Alabama or come back to Alabama. So once that was pointed out to the locals, they said, well, they could get the white nurses to supervise the, the black women and they would get black women to be quote, uh, housekeepers and nurses aides. And Dr. Ward, when he got there, they they had already started to staff the hospital. He immediately said, you know, what's the point in that? When I can get black nurses, they said, they don't exist. He said, yes, they do. He had trained some in Indianapolis at Ward Sanitarium. Another thing that they did was provided practical training for uh, African-American nurses. They only, he only had a few, but one of the things that he did was he went over to at the time, uh, City Hospital and then later Wichert Hospital ran its own nursing program before the IU School of Nursing started a program in Indianapolis. And he got an agreement with them that 
his student nurses could sit in the hallway and take notes listening to the lectures and they could come back to his place and work day and night at his place with the patients to get their practical uh, hands-on training and then sit for the exam to become registered nurses in Indiana. So Ward had already worked on training nurses for any number of years. And he said he knew that black nurses existed. So he said, I don't need to have white nurses tell black women what to do. I can get the black women to do that. And he brought in several uh, very qualified black women to start out with, and he either trained or they found other black women as they went. Another thing about Tuskegee VA Hospital, it sits just a mile away from the Tuskegee University that most people are familiar with. And the students at Tuskegee University could walk that mile back and forth to do their, uh, their clinical training in nursing or whatever it was. Tuskegee did not have a medical program, so to speak, but they did have allied health training programs and students often walked over to Tuskegee over to Tuskegee VA to get their clinical training and then went back to the university where their dorm room were. Also, um, Dr. Ward made a, um, a concerted effort to bring additional training for doctors to Tuskegee VA. And every summer they had held an institute and they used the dorm rooms at Tuskegee University for the medical doctors to stay in and then walk over to Tuskegee VA and listen to lectures and, and see uh, surgery demonstrations and all kinds of things going on to further the doctors from all across the country who would come to these one and two week institutes to learn whatever new technique was gonna be demonstrated. And that was a first being done in the United States for black medical doctors. Uh, it was one of the first places that uh, psychiatry was practiced for black patients and taught uh, to black doctors how to deal with psycho psychological issues. Let's uh, let's take a, a quick pause because I wanted to go back before we get too far advanced. Uh, you were describing uh, the size of Tuskegee earlier. There were four mm -hmm. hospitals you said that were of um, sort of black sizes, black black hospitals. Homer mm -hmm. G, where does Homer G. Phillips fit in that? Or is that later on in, in history? That comes a little bit later. Um, I'd have to dig that one back up. That comes a little bit later. Okay. Um, because my ahead. father, my father um, did his residency at Homer G. And okay. when we lived in St. Louis, he was there for a period of time. And I'm just wondering. Okay. Um, um, one of the things that we, we should stop and, and, and uh, probably expand on is that at one time in the United States, there were 125 black hospitals okay in indianapolis over time there were at least four uh they didn't all operate at the same time but across the united states there were 125 and there are um three i believe left of the 125 mm. uh, we're, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to come back and talk about that one because that, that's a whole hour right there but right. One, thing, one thing i do I made an observation earlier. I didn't get a chance to share this, but okay, with all the barriers, and we've talked over the last four occasions when you were on with us, um, including this one, with all the barriers affecting uh, progress and, and access, uh, you know, for blacks, I was somewhat pleasantly surprised he was able to go to medical school, 
but yet he he met more and encountered more barriers trying to advance in the disciplines. Um, how did he initially get to go to medical school? Was it because he could almost pass? Uh, no, it was quite by accident that he met George Hasty, and we don't have a lot of information about that that meeting. But he met him and came to Indianapolis, where Hasty operated the, the uh, medical school in Indianapolis, and it was primarily for white doctors. Dr. Ward is the only black one I know that went there, but Dr. Ward always, you know, I, from my knowledge, always identified as African-American. You know, he never tried to hide that or pass, mm-hmm. you know, that this is what he was. Mm-hmm. Um, technically, we would say he was biracial, but he identified as African-American uh, his entire life and was open and somewhat radical about that, uh, that, that concept. And, and, um, in that same vein, I'm just wondering if his path crossed the path of other uh, pioneers, advocates of that day, uh, who were champions for for the black people, and if he, you know, had a chance to sit down at the table and 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 talk about his area of of what he was uh, fighting in, and then others could share with him what they were going to, because because one of the reasons was he was a personal physician to Madam C.J. Walker. Yes, he was, he was. black black woman millionaire, if not. Uh, maybe the first yes. black millionaire. Um, she was the first black millionaire, millionaire and the first yeah. female millionaire, the first female of any any persuasion in the United States. Uh, first self-made. Let's put it like that. There are others who, who had money, you but had they money had inherited it. Right, but right, she right. earned hers. And interestingly enough, when Madam Walker comes to Indianapolis, the she comes to Indianapolis and she actually stays in the home of Dr. Ward before she gets her company off the ground. And part of that's because African-Americans were not allowed to go to hotels in the early 1900s in this country. And staying in the home of a relative or a friend was a very common practice. So she was not related to them, but because of someone recommending her and Dr. Ward's status, she stayed in Dr. Ward's home. And then surprisingly enough, one of the things that happened was Dr. Ward's wife um, Zella, Zella Ward takes um, Madam Walker around the city and then around central Indiana and introduces her to other African-American women who could afford, you know, hair care products and the whole process. And they were putting on these demonstrations in women's homes because they didn't have the uh, the, the the beauty shops are beauty parlors that we have today. So these things were all being demonstrated in women's home and it would just be a handful of women there to see it. And this is how the whole process starts. And it's Dr. Ward's wife who takes her around usually on weekends and they would go to one town and then another town and another town. They started off in Indianapolis just going from one side of town to another, one church to another. But then it spread out through central Indiana, through this network of churches, mainly the AME churches, because Dr. Ward was a very longtime member of Bethel AME, and the AME churches have a very strong network, and that is how Madam Walker actually got her start. And then when Madam Walker dies, it's my understanding, um, in 1919 in New York at her Irvington home, Dr. Ward was there. He had come back from France and had been held over in uh, at Camp Upton, New York, because some of the Black veterans who came home from World War One were still too sick and too, uh, too injured to go home. So they had a Army hospital functioning for them at Camp Upton, and Dr. Ward and a few others were held over at Camp Upton 
to treat these veterans. So Dr. Ward did not come straight home once he got back to the United States. While he was there, he got word that she had taken ill in St. Louis and was being brought back to New York on the train. And he met her train at the train station downtown New York. They transferred her to a local train and then took took them north out of New York City to Irvington. And he rode on the train with them from New York City to Irvington and then was at her house for a couple of days before she passed away. And he was at her bedside. Well, I, I you know, the, the dots are, are truly connecting. And it's like one of those once in a while you, you, you meet a, a driving force of persona that just, uh, uh, just rises above some of the ridiculousness of um, racism and confronts it head, head on. And then uh, there was an account in your article where some of his colleagues tried, it seems as if they tried to entrap him or tried anything to throw dirt and besmirch his character. Yes. So that, that, that he would take, unfortunately, the route that a lot of successful blacks during that time and even now have uh, fallen prey to. They just fall out of favor of everybody. Yeah. Um, while he's at Tuskegee VA Hospital, there was a disgruntled junior level employee who finally um, fell into the trap of making some outlandish and probably false accusations about Dr. Ward and several other employees. And um, the accusations were took up or taken up by the uh, by a lawyer with the Justice Department and they were prosecuted in the federal court at, um, I forgot the name of the town now, small town Alabama. At the end of the day, um, I think Dr. Ward, if I remember correctly, pled guilty or was found guilty, paid a fine, a small fine, and then allowed to leave Alabama and come back to Indianapolis. But the, the, what they were trying to do was get him out of the VA hospital. And several of the other employees were the same way. It, it all ended, you know, it's now I'm thinking about it. They didn't find him guilty. They just resigned their positions and left, as I think about it. And uh, some of the fines had to do with, uh, they accused them of stealing food which they could not prove. There was no way to prove they had stolen any food. There was no evidence of that other than somebody's word. And the case was really not strong enough to go through trial, but it was enough of an accusation to tarnish their reputations. And they, about a dozen uh, people ended up leaving Tuskegee VA Hospital. Um, with that said, and here's something we probably want to touch on as well. That's 1936. Dr. Ward leaves Tuskegee in 1936. The man who took his place was a doctor named Eugene Dipple. And Eugene Dipple was the chief of uh, medical operations at the John Andrew Hospital, which stands on the Tuskegee University campus. It's closed now and falling down, but the building's still there. Last time I was there, it was still there. With that said, this is where the Tuskegee syphilis experiment comes in. And the Tuskegee VA and Dr. Ward were not involved in that. Dr. Dipple and the John Andrew Hospital at Tuskegee was. And what I found so disturbing about all of that was to find out that in 1924, in one of those summer institutes, they put on for that entire two-week period numerous um, presentations where the different doctors, and we're talking about 50-some doctors that were on the staff at Tuskegee VA about syphilis and the treatment. And they had 
effective treatments for syphilis in 1924. They were not cures, but they had treatments that worked or worked to a degree. And they were not the liniments they were giving them and sugar pills and things like that. They actually had treatments. And these doctors had written papers that you can find. They're published in the National Medical Association Journal, not the American Medical Association. That's the white doctors, the National Medical Association. And if you Google them, you can find them. I think they are on the uh, National Institute of Health website. And in 1924, there's a whole series of articles about the care and treatment of syphilis. So I say all that to say that Tuskegee syphilis study starts in 1932. But in 1924, there were Black doctors that were already talking about how to deal with this, which makes the Tuskegee syphilis experiment conducted by the U.S. government all the more insidious and sinister because they knew what they were doing. And Dr. Dipple, who was highly involved in that, knew there's no way he could have not known that his colleagues a mile down the road knew of treatments for this problem. And he decided to go along with what the federal government wanted to do. Now, the federal government gave him money. They paid for the survey or the study, whatever you want to call it. They paid the doctors and the nurses to, you know, watch these people get sick and die over time. But it was blood money. And Dipple knew it. And Dipple knew that they had treatments. And he withheld those intentionally. Uh, can you explain to our listening audience? And uh, we're going to do two things. Let's first do this idea, and then I have a follow-up question. I'm going to turn this over to Liz. Uh, if you just turn, turn into Bring It On, we're having a riveting conversation with Leon Bates, who is a PhD student and researcher uh, who's covered a variety of issues here on Bring It On, from sundown towns to lynchings in Indiana to uh, police action shootings, and now today uh, the life and times of Lieutenant Colonel Joseph Ward. Um, and thanks for tuning in. Now, the, the, the follow-up to that is, for our listeners who are not aware of these experiments, uh, because there are some listeners who probably have never heard of it, can you just take a moment, explain to them, and then after that, I'm deferring over to Liz. Yeah, the Tuskegee, vet, um, Tuskegee syphilis experiments went on from 1932 to 1972, and there were a group of, I believe it's 400 approximately African-American men who were tested positive for syphilis. And they watched the progression of the disease as it slowly killed them over that 40-year period. Now, some died early and others, you know, came in later, but the number was somewhere around 400 men that were in this study. And it was carried out at a time when the U.S. government doctors already knew what would happen to people who had untreated syphilis. Dr. Ward also was trained in many of the Tuskegee VA doctors served in the First World War. The Army had a program to train doctors when they sent the Army to France of how to warn the soldiers about the the problem and about reporting it, the treatments. All of this was already known. And then when they get to Tuskegee, some of these doctors, some of the younger ones are learning lab techniques on how to better testing techniques. Others are learning about treatments. They're sharing the information. They had patients at the Tuskegee VA hospital, I'm sure, that they they were dealing with. Either they came home with it or they got it when they got home. They showed up at Tuskegee. They were dealing with it. So when the problem cropped up outside of the veteran community, there was no excuse for what the U.S. government did in experimenting. And I guess it was a, a cruel experiment 
to watch this happen. You have to also remember and think about the fact that these men went home, they infected their wives, they infected, you know, newborn, unborn children. So you had generations that were affected. And right now, I believe they are dealing with the children. I think all the, the, the original participants and spouses have now passed away, but there are several children who were infected at birth that are still being dealt with and compensated by the U.S. government for what they did. Okay, and I, I want to make sure that the listening audience understands that this was African-Americans that this yes. was done to. It yes, was not the white population, not the white soldiers. No. This was done to the African-American soldiers so that we it, understand. No, no, not, not, not the soldiers, the civilians. The soldiers and the veterans could be treated by the military or the Veterans Administration, and the Veterans Administration was treating them whenever they found it. But those civilians who did not know, and they went to the John Andrew Hospital at Tuskegee University, were placed into the Tuskegee Syphilis Study. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the movies you can see about that is one on HBO called Miss Evers Boys. You can can see it online. That's what that's about. They don't mention Tuskegee Tuskegee VA Hospital, but Tuskegee VA Hospital is just a mile down the road. And there were black doctors there that knew what, how to treat it and were treating all of the veterans that they came in contact with. I'm not sure how much they knew about what was going on inside of John Andrew, but Mm -hmm. I suspect they probably had an idea, but there was nothing that they could do about it. But the doctors at John Andrew and Dr. Eugene Dipple, who became the second head of Tuskegee VA Hospital, led that study until he left uh, John Andrew and went on to uh, Tuskegee and someone replaced him at John Andrew that continued that study on. And it went on until 1972 when it got out and Congress found out about it and cut the funding. And if that's not bad enough, The uh, U.S. Public Health Service did the same thing again in Guatemala a few years later. So Mm. there there is a group of Guatemalans who were affected in the same way under the same test protocols. And now we have that problem in, in Guatemala and the U.S. Public Health Service was at the core of that. And this is one of the reasons that you hear people oftentimes talk about not trusting, you African-Americans say they don't trust doctors, they don't trust hospitals. Uh, this is one of the reasons why. And it's interesting to me, I shouldn't say interesting, but in some ways it is, that when I talk to because I, I gave this talk a couple years ago over at, at IUPUI, medical students and some even practicing medical doctors don't know this history, and this is what they do. And then they wonder sometimes why their patients don't trust them or shy away from them. It's because of these kind of histories. Tuskegee is probably the worst example, but also if you watch TV, you can watch um, the Oprah Winfrey movie about um, Henrietta Lacks. And yeah. what was done to her at John Hopkins University Hospital. And today, you know, just cavalierly, uh, medical researchers talk about HeLa cells. And that name HeLa cells comes from the first initials of her first and last name, or first two initials, Henrietta, H-E, and L-A from LAX. And they combine them together to make HeLa. And they're, they're HeLa cells. And they found out that her cells were what they call the immortal line. The cells will keep uh, reproducing, keep regenerating, and they're identical to one another, which is very uncommon. But at the same time, if you want to do medical research, it's perfect because you can treat some of the test cells with your new medication and not treat others and look at the difference. And it is still being used in medical science today, but those cells were originally harvested in the 1950s 
from the from Henrietta Lacks while she was at John Johns Hopkins Hospital, uh, being cared for for I think it was cerv cervical cancer. Yes, that's true. Mm -hmm. and, and the family uh, didn't know about it, and she didn't know about it either. She didn't. She didn't know about it. But this is one of the reasons when you go to the hospital today, you have to sign an additional form that talks about informed consent that they have to tell you exactly what they're doing to you. And also that if they take anything out of you and they use it in a scientific experiment, you give up all rights to any any intellectual or financial gain from your bodily materials. Yeah. Now, you don't have to sign that form, but they will give it to you and tell you you need to sign it. Um, if you don't sign it, I don't know what will happen. Um, I don't probably think take it anyway. <laughs> yeah, they'll probably take it, but you won't get anything. But what I'm saying is, is that the reason those forms are given to you now is because of what happened to people like Henrietta Lacks, what happened to people like uh, like the, the Tuskegee uh, patients um, here in Indiana. Quickly, one example of experimentation in Princeton, Indiana, in Gibson County, down near Evansville. In the 1920s, um, a local hospital down there bought an x-ray machine. And from what I understand and can gather from this, they really did not know how to use this machine. They knew of it and knew what it should be, to should, knew what it should do and could do, but they didn't know exactly how it did it and, you know, and how to adjust it and set it. And they used it on 10 or 12 children. 10. 10. And Liz, they Liz, used you want to do the honors, Liz, and, and, and let uh, <laughs> Leon know the field trip we took down to Gibson, Gibson County. Ah, yeah. you actually went down there. Yeah, yeah uh, I did a, a play on that, and uh, we put it in our play, and it was Vernon Hardeman, uh, the, the youngest. He was five years old out of the 10, and yeah. he got the most of that radiation. He got the and worst he remembered, of it. He remembered the nurse saying, oh, my God, we gave him too I much. I gave him too much. Yeah. And all of them died of cancer. And he lived with a hole in his head. Yes. And, so, it, and they lied to the parents. They had them yes. sign a form that they were treating for ringworm. And yes. so that was enough. And so, you know, my my mother's 90. And she, she wasn't going to get the COVID vaccine. And so many African-Americans said, hey, I don't trust the government. They're not going to shoot me up with stuff. And, and there's is, a mistrust in the African-American community, a mistrust with anything the government is going to do because there's been too many experiments on us. And and, and I'm only saying all, saying this and, and bringing these things up is that to un make people understand that there is a reason why people fear and people don't trust mm -hmm. because they have either been a part of it or they have witnessed it. Yeah. Uh, the Hardemans, uh, my wife's family, you know, they're Hardemans. So yeah. they, they know about this firsthand. My my mother-in-law could tell you about it. She knew every last one of those those uh, 10 children. They were older than she was, but she knew every one of those individuals before they died. Yeah. And that's my whole point is that, you know, we know about this at a different level, at a different degree. And it's not just an abstract thing when we talk about it. It's real. It's a real and thing. It's a real thing. And there's a reason why people, you know, fear medicine and fear doctors and that with we have never addressed it or at least never addressed it properly to make everyone understand that there was a problem and that we need to continually work on this. Or if we, because if we don't, it's going to continue. People mm -hmm. will continue not to not to trust and people will continue to 
do the same kind of ghastly, grotesque experiments because they see nothing wrong with it. Well, and they see us as being expendable. Yeah, so, well, you know. Well, Liz, you, you once shared with me that uh, early gyne- gynecological experimentation. J. Marion Sims. What was, was conducted on enslaved women. On, on women. That's how That's yeah. how they came up with, uh, you know, OBGYN. And they use that, you know, slave women. Uh, Dr. Dr. J. Marion Sims yes. was a doctor outside of Montgomery, Alabama. And what he did was when young women, teenage girls have babies, their bodies are so small sometimes that it makes childbirth very difficult. Mm-hmm. And that difficulty can damage the body. And mm-hmm. one of the problems that you run into And it's not just African-American women, it's women, period, because it happens all around the world that in the process of giving childbirth, internal tissues get damaged and the tissues between the bladder and the bowel can become torn. And then when they heal on their own, sometimes they heal with an opening between the bladder and the bowel and constantly urine leaks out of the woman's bladder. Mm -hmm. And it's a very, you know unsightly, unsanitary condition. And for centuries, there was nothing that could be done about it. What Dr. Sims did was to experiment on surgically repairing these two structures so that that didn't happen. And the medical term for this, if I don't butcher it up, is visio-vaginal fistula. And that simply means that between the vagina typically or the uh, or the birth canal itself, a tear has occurred and also a similar tear has occurred between the urethra or the um, or, or, or the rectum. And these fluids leak because these structures can no longer hold them. And it makes the woman's life miserable from that point on. Sims perfected a surgery using slave women with this condition mm-hmm. without, I want to make sure you're listening, without out anesthesia. anesthesia. He, yeah. he had slave women hold the women down and he cut on them and then he sutured them without anesthesia. And he did this to a number of women until he perfected the surgery. And then he sold his house and, and shacks and everything in, in Alabama outside of Montgomery and moved to New York and set up a medical practice where he performed the same surgery on well-to-do white women with anesthesia. Yep. So that it was basically a, a painless procedure and it worked. And that procedure that, as Liz described it, is how OBGYN medicine started in the United States. And it was started on the bodies of black enslaved black women. Mm-hmm. And as an enslaved woman, you could not refuse. No. You had to do this. And the other women could not refuse to hold you down. And in the accounts of that, when you read them, other white doctors who went to Sims's place to witness the surgery being done said that they could not watch the surgery from beginning to end for the cries and shrieks of the women being cut on and the women struggling to hold this woman down while she's being cut on. I mean, you actually had five or six women hold one to a table while Sims is cutting on them and, and suturing them, um, and they're wide awake when this is happening. 
That 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 takes the Hippocratic oath and just slams it against the wall, and that, yeah. that, that, that and that makes Doctor Mingla in some respects, you're like one of the most gentle doctors you can ever have. Yeah. But again, people may be listening right now, and yes, it's graphic. Yes, it, it's yeah. horrifying, and hopefully, you've been able to get your child out the room. But, but we got to tell you something: if you do the research yourself, it is there. It it's is there. All you there. all you have to do is just go to your computer or go to your your smartphone and Google J. Marion Sims, and you can find out about J. Marion Sims. Uh, There is a little bit on there. If you Google Joseph H. Ward, um, if you Google soldiers, surgeon, soldier, physician, soldier, and physician, surgeon, soldier, there is an article that I wrote that will come up on Dr. Ward. This information is out there on the internet. You just have to look it up. These things we're talking about are just not taught to us in school, so most of us are unaware of, but well, at, you, you can find these things. At this yeah. point, we have 30 seconds left, and um, we're going to have to end, unfortunately, on that note, but it just means that Leon may be back for a fifth time sometime in the very, very near future. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's going to turn uh, into the Leon Bates show. <laughs> yeah, we, we were teasing him earlier. It's just he's, he's, he has a wealth of information. Yeah. And what we're doing, we're helping him with great uh, uh, expediency to get this uh, PhD uh, <clears throat> degree. But our thanks to PhD student and researcher Leon Bates for again joining us to shed light upon the life and times of Lieutenant Colonel Joseph H. Warden and a whole vast array of just medical history. Um, regarding the black community. Yes, yes. We just really appreciate you sharing your knowledge with this, Leon. Uh, Bring It On has an open submission policy. So if you have an idea for this program, let's hear it. Send an email to our volunteer staff. The address is bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to make sure that we share everything and anything with that's affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. The email address, once again, is bringiton at wfhb.org. Bring it on as executive producers, yours truly, and our assistant producers, Liz Mitchell. Show consultant and WFHB News Department Director is Kate Young and program engineer Chantal LaFontaine. Original theme music was created by Jamil FM with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm Clarence Boone. And I'm Liz Mitchell. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 6 p.m. for another edition of Bring It On, right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.